Scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 4, reading verses 1 to 16. Uh, I invite your hearing of the reading of God's Word, both in reverence and faith. So from Genesis chapter 4. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All of us uh, are acutely aware that there are um, many, many problems uh, in our culture. Uh, I I don't know, poverty, disintegration of the family, substance abuse, lawlessness, uh, to name just, uh, just a few. But the real cause uh, to take them all, you can take all of the problems in the world today and trace them uh, to one, and that is the curse. Uh, and we learn in this text before us this morning that the curse becomes generational and therefore societal. Uh, it's important to recognize uh, the curses uh, on all of humanity, including in a measure even the sons of God. We are still fallen. We are 
depraved, though not totally depraved because of the new birth. But nonetheless, we desperately need to follow our great Redeemer because we know the curse is everywhere and touches everything. And the enmity of the curse is realized in the text before us in a fallen son who will become many. Just one who tells us that many, many will follow in the likes of Cain. And they will persecute the sons of God as Cain uh, persecutes uh, Abel. Uh, Chiefly in our text, uh, Cain kills Abel. And God comes and curses him in a, in a much more intense way than the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it's very interesting to uh, catch in our text this morning uh, the parallels between Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 3. If you think about them, uh, there's disobedience, uh, there's a curse, and... Uh, uh, Cain is driven east. I'm sure there are others, but I think Moses is attempting to cause us to see the parallel of the curse between the two chapters. Uh, The real key is that the rebellion jumps, uh, metaphorically speaking, from the parents to the son. Now the enmity of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 will now eventuate between two sons, with one showing hostility to God and then to his brother. And his followers, we will learn, will persecute the sons of God throughout all time uh, until the Lord comes to rescue the sons of God. In other words, the effects continue today. The enmity between uh, men and God and between men and their brothers So we know now that Adam and Eve, uh, living under the curse, are redeemed because God has clothed them. Uh, They begin in faith uh, to live out a measure of the cultural mandate as they are able, uh, even in light of the fall, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. uh, And they begin by having children. Uh, Moses does not list all of their children. He's only interested in two. Uh, We need to continue to remember that the Bible is not a comprehensive history. It is a theological history, and the intent of Moses is now to deal with but two of the sons of Adam and Eve. And we should also assume, uh, rightly so, that Adam and Eve uh, attempted to raise their children to love God and to love their neighbor. Let's look at the progress of the curse. Verses 1 to 8. There's the enmity that eventuates in the failure of Cain uh, to love God and to love his neighbor. We begin with the births of Cain. Uh, Eve says in the first verse that it was with the help of the Lord. It's a reference to her faith. In spite of the curse, in spite of being driven out of the garden, she has faith to have a child. I think it's a beautiful picture of our culture in the sense that uh, there are countless numbers of young couples who say, I'm not going to have children. The world is just simply out of control. There's just no hope. It's just 
too bad and too sinister of a time. I'm just not going to have any children. Well, that's not faith. Eve exhibits faith. She has a son. With the help of the Lord. Continual reminder that in all of our uh, gettings in life, we should pursue the help of the Lord in all of our endeavors. It's very interesting. She names uh, him Cain. It's a wordplay on the verb to acquire as an ironic judgment on his upcoming failure. Uh, He's going to acquire lots of pain and sorrow. She has another son named Abel. Ironically, uh, the name Abel comes from the noun of vapor and breath, pretending uh, his upcoming demise. And consistent with a mandate to go forth and subdue, one becomes a farmer and another a rancher and a herdsman, verse 2. Perhaps at the end of the harvest season, they bring tribute to God. It's very important, I think, to recognize here in their bringing of tribute. How do they know to do that? Uh, It implies that there's been a revelatory event. Moses doesn't mention it, but there's been a revelatory event to bring your first fruits uh, in service and in worship of God. That the way to God and the continued relationship with God is by way of sacrifice. And so one is a farmer, he's going to bring the produce of the field, and another a herdsman, he's going to bring an animal. Pretending for us that both Cain and Abel are worshipers of God. Cain brings the first fruit of the ground. Abel brings the firstborn. And the text reads, and that the choicest, the choicest of his herd, the best of his herd, And the Lord favors Abel in his offering. The distinction, I think, is qualitative. Cain brings out of duty. Well, God tells me i got to bring a tribute to him, and so let's go pick some... I don't know what he picked, but he just gathers something. Abel brings the best. And he does so out of faith. Both of them had a duty to worship God properly. Abel marries to that duty, faith, which is an essential of all of life. We have a similar duty. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they brought the fruit of the ground. They brought animal sacrifices. We don't do that anymore. Because Christ has fulfilled the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. So what do we bring? We bring ourselves in service and worship to God. The Old Testament, it was a lamb or a dove. In the New Testament, we are the sacrifice. Parallel to the fact that we bring ourselves in sacrifice, uh, we are not conformed to the world. The world everywhere is attempting attempting to conform us to its image. By the grace of God, we are laboring by faith to be conformed to the image of Christ. In our text, Cain's sacrifice is rejected. And he becomes angry at God. 
I know lots of uh, people who profess to be Christians who some event happens to them that is a very sad event. It's a tragic event, and they get angry at God. Well, God, if you're going to treat me that way, I'm, I'm out of here. And so they simply leave the corporate assembly. So very wise not to get angry at God. It will never come to a good end. We should recognize that God is the sole sovereign. We entrust our lives, our happiness, our cares unto his good hand. And as his sons, we do that by faith. Our own particular world may appear to be out of control. But if we're the sons of the living God, he is in control of everything. And so we trust him. We walk by faith. Uh, the text uh, says that uh, Cain becomes angry at God. Literally, uh, the Hebrew uh, text is his face fell, which is an idiom for he becomes angry. And we know that his anger is uh, vented against God. I gave you something, you're not happy with it? That's, that's a difficult behavior. That's exactly what Cain is doing and saying. Let's look at a couple of New Testament texts that help us to understand this event. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, though which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gift and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. You bring sacrifices. It's your duty and tribute to offer your body as a living sacrifice, but never apart from faith. Never apart from faith. We do it by faith. That's the testimony that Abel still renders to us this very day. That he made his sacrifice. He took the best of his flock the choicest of his flock, and by faith he gave it in service to God. First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. That's why God accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain. So think about it. God does reject. And here he rejects Cain's sacrifice because it is vacant of faith, which is an essential for acceptance with God. But God in his grace comes to Cain with an opportunity to repent. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Essentially, if you come in faith, Cain, and do good, your countenance will be lifted up. The verb crouching is used of predators. Very interesting uh, sin is crouching at the door. 
Sin, in a way, is personified here uh, as a predator hunting Cain. And I would remind you, as a Christian, it is hunting for you. Satan is about us like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So every day we have faith trusting in God to be our help. There is never a moment that we shouldn't be trusting God and walking by faith. Why is that? Because predators seek us. To harm us. To carry us away. God tells Cain, but you must master it. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, Do not let sin have mastery over you. We gain the mastery over it through the gospel in Jesus Christ. Because the ultimate cure for the enmity that's now breaking out generationally in Cain can only be cured by Christ in the gospel. Word crouching is the same uh, verb uh, used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, that he shall rule over you. Reminder that the curse is being reduplicated. The event of the fall is being reduplicated now generationally. It's critical theology. So Cain rejects God and his word by remaining silent. And guess what happens? Sin gains the advantage on him. It's a reminder to us that sin is dynamic and growing. It's not some static concept. Uh, you don't deal with it in confession and repentance, it will continue to grow and fester. It's like a tumor. It's active and growing. Malignant tumor. Not some static concept. Reminds all of us that there's a predator always about us. And yes, even as Christians, walking by faith because we are not perfect, we're on occasion going to fall. But we must deal with it immediately in faith and repentance. Lest the predation becomes more vicious and violent were carried away. Great illustration to me on the great uh, animal programs that I love watching on, I don't know, History Channel, whatever channel it is. Always like it when the wildebeests are crossing the great rivers. Where the crocodiles are. To me, that's one of the scariest scenes. All of the animal kingdom. I mean, I get the lions and the tigers and the cheetahs, but there's something about a croc hiding under the water, coming closer and closer. Remember one time I was in Venezuela fishing in the rivers and there were alligators there and I fell in. I thought, well, I'm done for. I'll never make it out. Whole concept seemed to rule over me. But it's a terrifying concept that sin is a predator. And for us, even fallen than we are, uh, we must deal with it in confession and faith. Uh, and there's also the rejection. that God not only rejects Cain, but he, he rejects improper sacrifices. He rejects improper lives. Uh, you read the vice accounts of uh, Genesis, uh, pardon me, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5. Paul says over and over, those who practice such things 
with a stress upon continually practicing such things, will not enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting that Cain rejects God, rejects his offer of repentance and grace, and God rejects him. And there is rejection both throughout all of human history. But God's is so much greater and all the more terrifying. Will not enter the kingdom of God in Christ. Uh, he also rejects lip service. People who simply come into church out of duty. Well, my wife or my husband tells me I gotta go and Hear bower socks drone on and on, countless minutes wasted when I could be, I don't know, hunting pheasants. By faith, we must come. Everything that we do as a Christian must be energized by trusting God and walking by faith and not by sight. You walk by sight, things are going to terrify you. So we walk by faith and we trust God. We give to Him our bodies as a sacrifice, including our time in His service. Case here this morning, there's enmity now between Cain and uh, God. He's mad at God. He has enmity against God. It eventuates in the killing of his brother Abel. Turns the enmity of his hatred against God for rejecting his sacrifice to kill his brother. The shift is the absence of love for God to his brother. Uh, the word brother is used seven times in this text. It's the old saw for every Christian. We have two chief duties. To love God and our neighbor. Cain has failed at both. He's mad at God. And so he kills his brother. And that's the point of the enmity. We have enmity against God, and so we have enmity against our brother. And out of envy and jealousy, he plans harm to Abel, when in the field Cain rises up and kills him. The word kill here in the Hebrew Bible is the word for premeditated murder. He premeditated to take his life. And so you can see the progress of the curse. It's passed from Adam and Eve to their children. And one is outside the faith. And his enmity against God causes him to have enmity against his brother. Well, in verses 9 to 16, God comes to confront him and curse him for reduplicating the fall of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? It's parallel to God coming to Adam and Eve and saying, who told you that you were naked? God questions him. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a difficult way to confront the living God. And that shows you the point of enmity growing in his heart. Am I my brother's keeper? Who do you think I am? 
God, you didn't tell me that today was the day to watch my brother. I didn't watch for him. He knew exactly what he had done. And by the way, we are the keepers of our brothers. We are to express love for them because of our love for God. If you have it in your hand and your ability to help someone in need, you help them. Many occasions you won't be able to, but sometimes you will be. By faith, you are your brother's keeper. And by refusing to confess and repent, God curses him in a very intense form, parallel to the curse of Genesis chapter 3. First, verse 12. The ground will no longer yield its strength to you at all. At all. Parallel to the curse of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Because you've eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat from it. In other words, the rest of his days, Adam is going to have to toil over the ground. It's going to yield to him fruit, but only through work and hard work and sweat and toil. Now the ground is in cursely intense in light of what Cain has done. He can work on the land all he wants. It will yield nothing to him. Nothing at all. He's been a farmer. He knows what it is to plant and to harvest and to gain the increase of the harvest. Now he will work all he wants and every one of his crops will turn up dead. Very, very intense form of the curse. Secondly, you shall be a vagrant and a wanderer. So, figure of speech. Technically, uh, hendiadus, two for one. Intensified form. Continually wandering as a broke vagrant the entire rest of his life. And sin will dog him his remaining days. As a fugitive, he will always be having to move. He complains about his punishment, verses 13 and 14. I mean, rightfully so. It's a reminder of the danger of enmity. When you're mad at God, you're liable to be at enmity with your brother. And when you forsake the cure that's in the Savior, it will only grow and intensify. In common grace, God gives him a sign or a mark to protect him physically. Then he is driven. To me, these are very sinister, powerful words. Driven from the presence of the Lord, verse 16. You know, imagine, you know, the horror of it. If we could, we could never go to church, sing the great hymns, read the scriptures. That every time we went to a church, the doors were locked. We could hear the singing and the joy, and uh, we could hear in a fellowship hall the, the joy of Christian friends interacting. But when we tried to get in, the doors perpetually locked. Horrifying concept that now breaks upon Cain, driven continually from the presence of the Lord. East to the land of Nod. It's a wordplay on the word wanderer. He's driven to be a wanderer all of his life. 
We see that in our culture, do we not? Men forsake their children, leave home. I see on occasionally on the news just an incredibly tragic scenes of people living on the streets, abusing chemicals. Wow, what kind of life is that? Wandering perpetually. As if there is no God. It's just kind of a way of shaking me when you see the tragedy of it. A life spent in utter ruin in love totally of self, totally absent love for God or love for neighbor. It's Cain, driven east to the land of wanderers and vagants. And he now has to hide his face from God. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, he is hidden perpetually. Never to find God. You will never have a home in his life, much less in the life to come. It's a reminder, the danger of sin. Forsaking repentance, confession. Telling God, you don't, I don't need your sacrifice. People have no idea of what they're saying or doing because of what it means. We see a measure of it in Cain. We see it everywhere in our culture. God has rejected him in his life and a life to come. It's a point of the urgency of the gospel. To guard your heart against enmity against God and enmity against your brother. And to hold fast. Cure for it all in Jesus Christ. In a very picturesque way, both Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 are a return to the tragic words of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. In Cain's life, and there is no spirit hovering over him. It's a tragedy of the curse that's fallen upon him. It's a reminder to be very careful about how you deal with God. Because he is the ultimate, only sovereign And we should render to him proper service by faith. By faith. Always by faith in his worship and service. And Cain becomes the father of false religion that throughout the centuries, civilization is in opposition to the church. He hated his brother and false religion hates our faith and our love for the one true God. And the progression of the curse will only get worse throughout civilization. It's a subtlety here in Genesis. It's only in Genesis, but it is a very important subtlety in Genesis because God, throughout the book of Genesis, is forever rejecting the firstborn for the youngest. It occurs throughout our text will form something of our studies. We look at the generations. God rejects the firstborn. He's rejected Cain. 
Again, it doesn't occur outside of Genesis because we don't know who God rejects. That's in his providence. But a powerful reminder of the curse. And the enmity is now the perpetual persecution uh, the sons of God must encounter in hostility uh, throughout our lives. A reference to this in Matthew chapter 24. The continuing hostility between the sons of Cain uh, and the sons of uh, the true God. Matthew chapter 24. It's a particular reference to those who are persecuting Christ and his followers, but that will continue to perpetuate. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Where does that come from? Genesis 3 and 4. The perpetual enmity now between the sons of God and the sons of Cain. John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus tells his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. If any man says that he loves God and hates his neighbor, he lives in darkness. He's a follower of Cain. Because that duty is perpetual. It never evaporates. We're to love God properly by faith and we're to serve our neighbor by faith. Importance of love. Critical importance of love. So the false religion rejects our faithful tribute to the one true God and hates us. And when false teachers come into the church, very interesting, Jude aligns them with Cain. Let's turn to the book of Jude. Perpetual reminder of enmity between God, between neighbor. Uh, Jude has false teachers that have invaded his church. And notice how he aligns them. Verse 11, woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain. Well, it's no big deal to have enmity against God and his neighbor. That's God's problem. That's my neighbor's problem. Be very careful of walking in his footsteps. Very interesting that Jude uses the word woe to them. Our Savior uses those words of the Pharisees and Sadducees in his earthly ministry. Woe to them because they are at enmity with him and will ultimately have him killed. Continual parallel running throughout the Scriptures. Enmity against God and neighbor. For us, Christ is the only cure. Thank God, He cures. It's our reminder that God always rejects uh, false religion and the absence of faith in Him. Remind you of that. You come to church on a Sunday morning. 
You should come by faith. I know you have lots of things to do. There are chores at home and duties to your spouse and on and on and on. You have to come by faith. God, you will take care of me. You will bless my time as I go to worship you by faith, not by sight. Come properly in the way that Abel brought his sacrifice. Well, as I've mentioned perpetually, the divine provision for enmity is faith in Christ. We trust Christ in the midst of opposition. We continue to love God and our neighbor. We pray for our enemies. We pray for our civil governors to protect us physically against enmity. Man, we should really pray about that. In many cases, they enhance lawlessness. What a tragedy. Forsaking the duty that God gives civil governors much in the same way that Cain forsook his duty before God. And God favors us because of Christ. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. In one fell swoop, the author of the book of Hebrews is telling us that the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament falls upon Christ as the greatest sacrifice, and that there we place our trust and hope in Him, and we forsake all others but Him. Sacrifice of Abel points to Christ. He was looking forward. We look back at the cross. And he also secures our spiritual protection as we transit this life. It's very interesting. There's an interplay in Genesis chapter 4 of uh, when, when Cain uh, complains to God. Uh, God says, no, I'm not going to let anyone kill you. And he marks him in some way. We don't really know what the mark is. Uh, but he receives a mark from God for physical protection. The concept occurs in the book of the Revelation. Uh, there's a conceptual parallel uh, to the mark that's uh, given Cain. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. Another angel, third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead and upon his hand. This is Mark of Cain. Uh, sin owns them and will deliver them faithfully and securely to the hand of perpetual, eternal judgment, the world without end. It's intensified Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Notice no rest. That's Cain. He had no rest from anything. Perpetual wanderer and vagabond. Utterly bankrupt. 
Here it's being reduplicated by John, Revelation 14. There are vagrants in eternity. And they are driven perpetually from the presence of God throughout all time, world without end. Intensification of the mark set upon Cain. Uh, I'd remind you that uh, you and I are Mark 2. Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, Angels are about to be unleashed upon the world in uh, judgments. Revelation 7, 3, read, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So all of the sons of God are marked. And the angel of death has to give us a wide berth. The spiritual forces of Satan can harm us physically, but not spiritually. We are, if you will, cocooned in the grace of God, protected spiritually until we come to our eternal rest and our eternal home. Revelation 14 references the worshipers of false religion aligned with civil government to hurt the church. Our countersign is Revelation 7.3. We are sealed on our foreheads. Same thing as the sealing in Ephesians 1. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit to promise. Set our seal upon us in sovereign grace. Meaning that we will reach our eternal home. The rest are Perpetual vagabonds bankrupt forever in eternity. You and I were bankrupt and God made us rich in Jesus Christ. He charged His righteousness, the merits of His obedience to our account. In a moment in the doctrine of imputation, we are recovered by sovereign grace. It's a compelling reason if you know not the Savior to flee to Him because He alone is eternal safety. And then He dispatches His Spirit to grow us up in true faith. So God protects us spiritually from judgment. It's interesting that there are two marks. One for the perpetual vagabonds who are utterly bankrupt, world without end, forever driven from the presence of God, never ever to return. And then another mark of those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit to promise. And you know what? The angels, the angels know the difference. When the judgments occur, the angels will gather us into our everlasting home. And the untold riches of the promise of eternal life will break upon us in the fullness of joy which we can only imagine in the paucity of the English language. The hope of Christ. A measure of the sacrifice of Abel. By faith we trust in the Savior. By faith we know He will deliver us. And so He will. That is our hope. I trust it's your hope.
this very day.